Good morning. That retreat was as amazing and as fun as it looked. My name is Amy Gagnon, and I'm going to be reading from John 8, 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do not bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I am, where I came from, and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had yet not come. Thank you, Amy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, the weather has cooperated with my sermon this morning a little bit more than I anticipated because um, I, in the mornings I'm able to be out in the entryway a little bit and just kind of gauge energy or mood or just where people's, you know, enthusiasm is at when they're coming into the house of God and stuff. And it's always fun to be a part of that and to witness it. And a day like today, it's a little more subdued. Everyone's still happy, still pleasant, but just the noise in the, in the uh, foyer, everything's just a little bit more subdued because the weather has kind of dampened that a little bit. And if you're like me, I like an occasional uh, gloomy, gray, rainy day. You know, it's, I'm an indoor cat. And so uh, being an indoor cat, I like the excuse of having to stay inside. If the weather is good for too long, I start feeling the pressure of having to go out and do chores. And so I'm kind of like, hey, I like the excuse. So I don't really mind sometimes, as much as I don't like winter, I don't mind the excuse of being snowed in or bad uh, rainy days being rained in or something. But if you're in that climate for a long period of time, it does have an impact on us. It's just partly the way we're made. It's how we receive things like sunlight and those sorts of things and what it does for our affect. And so um, people have often complained that live in rainier climates, the Pacific Northwest or London, England or something, that having so much of that rain and that cloud cover and everything does kind of impact the mood of people. And we're here in the stormy Northeast, so we probably know about seasonal affective disorder. And so I was thinking about this week going going into the message and just saying, you know, that is a, a thing that people seem to deal with. And we get bouts of it ourselves as we're dealing with the weather and the changing seasons. And so being a full service church, we're giving you a public service announcement. We're coming into the darker days of fall and then eventually winter. Here's what psychiatry.org describes as seasonal affective disorder. It's a type of depression, a major depressive disorder with seasonal pattern. People with SAD, as it's often referred to, or seasonal depression or winter depression, they experience mood changes and symptoms typically during the fall and winter months when there's less sunlight and usually improve with the arrival of spring. 
The most difficult months for people with SAD in the United States tend to be January and February. Right? No duh. We go in for the long slog of it all up here. SAD has been linked to a biochemical imbalance in the brain prompted by shorter daylight hours and less sunlight in winter. As seasons change, people experience a shift in their biological internal clock or circadian rhythm and then cause them to be out of step with their daily schedule. SAD can be effectively treated in several ways, including light therapy which involves sitting in front of a light therapy box that emits a very bright light and it filters out the harmful UV rays. It usually requires 20 minutes or more per day, typically first thing in the morning during the winter months. Why am I going through this? Obviously not just to talk to you about how to improve your seasonal affective disorder or to encourage you to go to Amazon uh, while you're in this message and go get a UV safe light to heat yourself up for 20 minutes a day. The point is, is that light, sunlight in particular, uh, impacts us as physical creatures, ones who were made in the image of God. And so when we're deprived of that light for too long a period of time, it does have an impact on us. Now, the text that we just heard from Amy's reading, uh, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. And and he's making a contrast, a stark contrast between light and darkness. And so it's with this impact on us as physical creatures in mind that I want us to move into this text. Because Jesus is more, please hear me, Jesus is more than light therapy. He's more than just the thing we bring in to help our changing moods or our circumstances. Isn't it so often that when we're when we're down on ourselves or we're down in life, we're getting kicked around or we've been uh, dismantled in our own selves because we're embarrassed that we've been caught red-handed or something. There's this thing that, that makes us want to be better or want to have healing. And so we look to Jesus, but he's treated like a 20-minute heat lamp that once I feel warm enough from the glow, I can shut it back off and then move on with the rest of my life. But he's more than that. Now, in the context of, of our uh, passage of Scripture here in John 8, if you're new to faith, we work our way through the Scriptures kind of in a systematic, expository kind of way. And so we've been going through the Gospel of John, which is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you're welcome to join us there in your Bibles if you have it with you. If you don't, we have those verses and others that I'll be referencing on the screen behind me. Uh, but the context that these uh, words are shared, this incredible message of hope from Jesus, is in the aftermath of a great celebration. Those of you that have been with us, you know that we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, primarily um, playing out for us in chapter 7. And Jesus makes his presence... Uh, there, along with all the other um, Jewish folks, and particularly the requirement of Jewish males to make the trip to be a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, or it was also known as the Feast of Booths. And they looked forward to this all year because it was often a family event and the kids were learning incredible lessons about the faithfulness of their God and they'd spend the entire week uh, reveling in the imagery and the reminder and, and shouting the praises and singing the songs and just being a part of the event. And the whole thing's just a spectacular celebration. And now it's over. And I don't know if you've been in, most of us have, been in a setting where something massive just happened and now it's done. I always feel this kind of haunting feeling 
like something big just happened here and all the traces of it are all left all over the ground and, but it's moved on. People have gone back to their regular lives. Growing up, my dad was a janitor for a local high school. And so I always got into the, the football games, you know, kind of showed up for work with him and everything. So I get to kind of watch the games and hang out near the locker room. And all the guys just seemed like they were just massive, huge, hulking figures and everything. And they all said things in like half words, like, hey, dude, uh, yeah. and everything. I just thought they were the coolest thing in the world and stuff. And, and, uh, and then of course, you know, crowds arrive and then they show up and you're a part of it all. And, and you know, you're, only motivation is to get a hot dog, you know, and that kind of thing. And as a kid, I'm just participating in all of this. And it's just so fun. And it's like every Friday night they had a home game. We were a part of it. And uh, I felt like I had special access to other places that people didn't and everything. But when it was all said and done, there was like the the, the tape that they would use to wrap things up. It was all over the floor, the confetti of things, the, the, the uh, empty Pepsi cups and the wrappers and all that sort of everything was just there. And it's like, wow. It was just weird to see it having, it was so fun last night, but on Saturday morning, it looked like misery. I, I had to, uh, I, I say I had to, some of you are like, man, that would have been great, but nope, I had to do it two years in a row. I had to go down to New Orleans for a business meeting right on the heels of Mardi Gras and New Orleans ain't my scene. I'm just telling you, you know, not only is because it's just like the, the vestiges of just nothing but a drunken party and everything, but also all the food looks at you. Like every plate had eyeballs. And those of you that know me know I don't do that, you know. And so there was just really, I'm sorry, if you're from New Orleans or something, I'm, I don't mean to offend your culture or your background or anything. But I couldn't do it. But coming at the end of Mardi Gras, and you see, even though there were still lots of people around and the party still kind of lingered, you can tell something bigger had happened on the streets of this city. And it didn't look pretty. What was left over was kind of like, Ooh, what's going on here? You know, it was just, you could tell people were like, we live for the moment. We have the height of the celebration. And then there's always that letdown. There's always, well, what's next? Well, ho-hum, I guess we go back to work. And Jesus is still teaching in the temple court after this massive celebration that they all look forward to. And now their hearts are kind of settled back to real life. And there's that, that momentary high. We were close with God. We celebrated his goodness. Now it's just, you know, but Jesus remains teaching. He spoke these words in the treasury, verse 20 told us, as he taught in the temple. And in the treasury, just to kind of paint the picture for you here, is there's these 13 chests, and the chests were made to look like trumpets, not like the trumpets you and I know, but the horns that they would blow. And so they had these massive chests that were there for the collection, so so that the faithful Jews that would come into the temple, they would know that, um, I've got a list here, there would be these half-shuckle um, collections that people could throw in that would support the needs of the temple. They would have um, uh, pigeons, you could throw pigeons in the bucket and everything that was for future sacrifices there was a wood collection for those sacrifices as well there was a collection for the incense that was burned during the the um the the um rituals and things and there was upkeep for the golden vessels they had all of these categories all laid out so in our day and age it would be like if you said you know we've got some of those four foot long um fluorescent bulbs we're going to bring those in we know the church uses a lot of those so we're going to put those in a bin or they we they they use cleaning products. We're going to put those in the thing. And so they would do all the practical needs for the assembly to continue its upkeep. 
And then for the sacrifices to still take place. And then they had these three that were sort of the undesignated for the extra that the person would want to give. They'd say, well, I still have some money left over. Um, I've wanted to give this to the Lord and have the temple use it at their discretion and that sort of thing. So in our day and age, we would call that the difference between like your tithes and your offerings, your tithes, taking care of the making sure the things are running around here and the ministries are supported. And then the offerings are the like we had when Chris Nanakin came through and said, I've got a, a family in desperate need. Will you do something about it? And this church stepped right up and said, yeah, we can do that and we'll help out to the tune of thousands of dollars. And so that's the that's the the environment that Jesus is teaching. And so you would think what he's talking about here is going to be money related, but it's not. I emphasize the fact that it's the chess and the collection because I'm a pastor and I get to talk to you about money because it's in the text today. <laughs> no, that, that's all I'm saying about money. I'm moving on. But it was there. That's what the chests are for. Really what's going on in our text is Jesus, they're pointing out the location because the location is the place where these four giant torches get lit in the evenings during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens to be in the same location where these giving chests, these collection chests are. These giant candelabras, these giant torches have been lit. And you can imagine on the heels of the celebration as Jesus is teaching in that environment that you can still smell the burn, the leftover, the smoke in the air. And and, and they would say that that light would glow so bright that there wasn't an area in the region that wasn't lit up by its glow. And this was part of the highlight. It allowed the dancing and the celebration to go late into the evenings. Because this was just roaring fires lighting this up. And it's in that context that Jesus speaks to them in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me will not have to just settle for candelabras that eventually go out at the end of the week. But will have the light of life. Please hear me this morning. Unless you are walking in the light of Jesus... You are stumbling in the darkness. That, that sounds, I know, like a very straightforward, basic statement of Christianity. And for the most part, it is. But please, please hear me. Think about this. Our world offers us all sorts of, of light sources, all sorts of betterings, improvements on our life, self-improvement, little gadgets, all these kinds of things that make our lives better. And we are, we are lulled into a sense of thinking we're walking in a glow that is helping us get through life until we stumble over something we didn't see. And we realize I've been walking in a dark forest this whole time. Unless you are walking in the light that Jesus is and promises himself to be, then you and I are stumbling in darkness. Because Jesus is more than illumination. He is transformation. Seeing that he is the light of life requires that we start to acknowledge, you know what? I am tripping around in darkness. I have been stubbing my toe all the time. I'm telling everybody I know my way around this room. I put the furniture where it is. I'm telling everybody I'm doing okay. But all the bruises on my toes would lead people to see otherwise. The evidence is there that I, I keep tripping over myself, that I keep walking into things that I forgot were there. The truth is, I would get through life a lot better, and life would make a lot more sense if I could just see where I was going. It starts with an acknowledgement 
that we are walking in darkness and being honest about that before we come to Christ. Because we're not just sick people who need healing, although we are, but we're not just sick people. We're dead people before we come to Christ. This got heavy, huh? Good message topic for a gloomy, rainy day. We're not just sick. We're dead. Paul teaches us this in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were, there's that stark word, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and walked in the scriptures as a manner of lifestyle. The way that you conducted yourself over and over and over again was in trespasses, that is crossing the line of God's holiness and infringing on his holiness with our sin. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This we were it was in the driver's seat, this 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 movement, this momentum, it was carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a praise to this. If you're no longer walking in darkness, it helps to see the contrast and be like, that's right. That's who I was. I was stubbing my toe all the time because I was walking around in darkness. Thanks be to God that I'm no longer there. Please don't hear what I'm saying from the scriptures today is that we've arrived because we were smarter than you. If you're still walking in darkness, we saw the light. We were gracefully given the light and we, by God's grace still in mercy, we responded to that light and now we walk in that light. We have to be honest when we're walking in darkness. We have to recognize that there is a stark contrast. I want to quote from a, a guy named Michael Lawrence who wrote a simple little book called Conversion. He says, no matter how good the flesh is, it cannot produce the spiritual life that's needed if we would be right with God. It's not that we tried hard but fell short or we meant well but got sidetracked. See, the excuses that we give ourselves falling short of God's glory is, well, I meant well and he'll count that towards me because of my intentions. It's that our sinful nature desires to please the flesh, that means ourselves, rather than God. Even when we do the right thing morally, we do it for the wrong reasons, to justify ourselves and bring ourselves glory So here's the contrast we need to pay attention to. Like a dead person, we are incapable of loving God for God's sake. Now, this is hopeful instruction. I know it doesn't sound it. It sounds like we're just burying ourselves to continue to use the dead terminology. But the reality is that's what the gospels called us to, to to crucify the flesh in order that we might be made alive in Christ. But it starts with a recognition that we're dead. It starts with the acknowledgement that we've been walking in darkness. So we're starting to see that our situation is worse than just being misguided or slightly off. And honestly, folks, that's what I run into and probably you do more than anything else. It's dangerous to have just a little bit of Jesus. It's dangerous to have a little bit of self-help guidance or, or a little bit of religion that allows us to be successful throughout a day. If my only aim is to get through life, there's plenty of methods out there that'll help us do that. You'll run into all kinds of people who don't subscribe to your Jesus who are doing okay in life. And I don't even just mean like physically, I mean financially or physically, but they seem to be healthy, balanced, whole people. 
The missing ingredient is what lives on the inside of us, or I should say what is dead and decaying on the inside of us, that all manner of self-help and self-improvement techniques can't touch. We need a savior for the darkness of our souls. And we're walking in complete and utter darkness until we find Jesus. Darkness or blindness is exactly what got the Pharisees in trouble. If you recall from what we had just heard from our text, it's because it, it was because of their darkness. They couldn't see who Jesus was. So he throws out again this incredible offer, this incredible imagery that should have brought hope to everybody around the light of the world. I mean, man, we finally have the light. You mean a torch that doesn't go out? What do they do? They do what they always do. They challenge him. Let's go back to verse 13. The Pharisees respond to him on a technicality. And by the way, one they're getting wrong. And Jesus will point that out. But instead of responding to the message again with hope, they go, how can we shut this down? Oh, I know you're bearing witness about yourself. So your testimony doesn't count for us. You're, you're just talking about yourself. You're the only witness you have. So it doesn't count. We don't have to listen to this. Everybody. He's talking about himself. Now, if someone else came and talked about you, then maybe we'd listen, but they wouldn't. Jesus could have trumped up any one of the other witnesses that we've already been introduced to already in these first seven chapters of the of the text. So what does Jesus say? He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Don't. Read that to say he doesn't judge ever. What he's doing is he's saying, you judge according to the flesh, and that's not how I operate. Now, there is some truth to the fact that Jesus' primary mission on earth was to be the Savior, not the judge, and he makes reference to that. But it would confuse you as you continue reading and go, wait a second, now he's talking about judgment after he says he doesn't. So read that phrase a little bit differently. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one like that. I don't have the same limitations you have. Verse 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now he's got his witness. And he could have said, oh, you should need to talk to the woman at the well. She'll tell you I'm all that I'm cracked up to be. Talk to the people there at that wedding when I change the water into wine. They'll tell you what's up. But he doesn't do that. He says, my father will bear witness about me. Verse 17, in your law, which sorry to keep pausing, but in your law doesn't mean he's dismissing it as like, oh, you have this silly little law. He's saying in the law that applies to you, which of course he's not bound by because he's the writer of that law. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself. So there's one and the father who sent me bears witness about me. There's two. They said to him, therefore, so where is this father of yours? Your second witness, if we don't see him, then how can we know that your testimony is true? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Because of their blindness, because they are tripping around in the dark, they can't even respond to Jesus in the way that belief would look like here. If you and I were there and we were saying, boy, I would love a do-over. I'd love to be able to be in that scene and just have have them see that we could respond better to all Jesus' words instead of him always being tripped up. What it would sound like is you would say, look, I'm having a hard time putting the dots together because I wasn't expecting someone from Galilee. I was expecting someone from Bethlehem. Could you answer us on that one? He'd say, oh, yeah, that's where I was born. 
or, you know, we were expecting the Messiah to look like this. We thought you'd be a political savior coming in on a white horse and we'd set up a campaign and everything and get you to establish this. Is this what you came to do? Is it something different? Yeah. Let me talk to you about my father's kingdom. These sincere questions he would have been able to answer, which would have led them to see that he was sent from the Lord. But what we need to see from this is that he, they just keep shutting him down, finding they're grasping at straws. Why? Because they don't want to believe in him. It's not because he's not able to answer their questions, but their blindness is causing them to not accept that he could be true. These are the same people that would drag a woman in the midst or in the, in the very act of adultery, even though their law says you condemn them at both at a, at a time. They're like, ah, oh, we don't need the other guy. We just need her, you know, which, which really reeks of setup and all the other kinds of things that happen with that. And so they are dismissing the technicalities of their law when they don't want to adhere to it because they want to just trip up Jesus, caring nothing about the incredible shame that's going on in this woman's life. And yeah, she was guilty of stuff. Jesus addressed it. But but they were the type of people that would bring her there, embarrass her even more because she was just a pawn in the whole scheme. They They're not shepherding her like they should have. And so they use her to pin Jesus against the wall. Of course, it doesn't work. But they're the type of people that would do this. And they're the type of people that would d- dismiss Jesus' offer of light on a technicality. That again, that they're getting wrong. You don't have more than one witness. Yes, I do. I have plenty. So how does Jesus stand up to him? Well, we saw it in the text. He says, you've got a limited awareness of your own origin and destination compared to where I'm coming from and where I'm going. I mean, that had to have pricked the conscience a little bit. He says to him, do you know where you came from and where you're going? Do you know what tomorrow is for you? They would have to admit in my humanity, I don't know what tomorrow is. And Jesus is able to say, I know what my future is. I know from where I came. He he responded to them by their limited ability to judge rightly because they've only had finite and experiential uh, judgments. Why? Because they're human beings. They're not infinite. So Jesus calls them out on that. And then he says, not only that, but you don't even know who you claim to know. You think you know God. You're not even close. They have limited knowledge. But even then, this is the part that I wonder if we sometimes stop and just entertain. Even then, they could have repented. Even then, these guys could have just dropped their guard and say, like we see Nicodemus starting to do in our story. Even then, they could have said, I don't know. Remember the soldiers a couple weeks ago? They said, we went to arrest him, but we just stopped in our tracks because we couldn't lay hands on him. There was something about what he was saying that we couldn't wrestle with or argue with. Even then, if they just dropped their guard, if they just dropped their prestige, just dropped their authority and said, you're going to have to help us with this because all of our lives, just like Nicodemus did, all my life has been pursuing one thing and you're completely dismantling it. Don't you think Jesus would have responded in love, compassion and grace? He's only beating on them because they're getting a harder shell around their, around their whole person. Here's what you and I need to hear. Rather than us thinking that, that Jesus is just waiting to flick us because we're rebelling or we're not, we're not soft to his call of grace or anything, you need to understand that every problem you encounter in the darkness can be dealt with in the light of Jesus. I don't know how many times I have heard people say, Jesus couldn't forgive me, my sin is too great. In fact, he's the only one who can. You might be asking too much of human beings in the sense of being willing or able to, but Jesus knows where he put that. He nailed it to a cross. 
He's willing and ready to deal with your sin in his light. But we're not just sick. We're dead and we need to acknowledge that before we come to him. We're also not just renewed. We're remade. We need to strengthen our terms from time to time. Remember, Jesus is revealing himself to be the fulfillment of long expected promises. They were no doubt familiar with Ezekiel 36, where God had promised that he'll give them a new heart and a new spirit that he'll put within them. And he says, I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I'll summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. More than just the promise of all the prosperity that he was saying, he said, my presence will dwell with you. And that meant something to them for all those, all, all their generations. God had been a, a, a sort of an external or a distant force, someone that they had to obey and fear and everything. God said, there will be a day where I will live inside of you. I will transform your heart. I will do more than just be an illumination to your path. I will move inside and clean you from the inside out. I go back to Michael Lawrence's book on conversion for just a second. He says, a Christian isn't someone who prays a prayer and tries hard to be good. We've been often introduced to that kind of method. You just say these words, you mean it a whole heck of a lot, and then you're good forever. That's not what being a Christian is. Instead, a Christian is someone whose heart has been transformed by God's grace, who is characterized by repentance and faith, and who desires to be with God and know him more. Do you notice nowhere in that paragraph said is somebody who's finally got it all right? Someone who's finally just completely in the light and no desire to st- to go back into the darkness or anything. If if you're anything like me, the darkness still has quite an appeal and quite a pull and a draw. So what would make me a Christian as opposed to someone that just gives into that? I, I, I would have been somebody whose heart has been transformed by God's grace. Him being able to put the pieces together that I can't do myself. Being characterized by repentance and faith. I feel like I'm always repenting to God. I feel like I'm always saying I'm sorry. Well, that's a whole lot better than not saying it at all. And somebody who desires to be with God and know him more. I have so many conversations with people that doubt their salvation and they're worried about it. And I said, the fact that you're worried about that, doesn't that mean you still desire to be with him? I mean, if you see a gap between you and God and you're desiring to be closer, you're just looking at your own sin as though it's unforgivable, as though he didn't pay for it, but you still desire to be with him. That's a mark of a Christian. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Our nature has been transformed. And this new heart allows us to see that Jesus is the real light. You see, light had so many powerful images in the scripture. Even the light that is being celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles by those giant torches is a light that not only guided them for direction, like a massive lamp that just lit their way. But it also was a presence for them in the, in the tabernacle that, that God would dwell with them in light. But even more, even I should say equal to those things, it was a protective light. If you remember the story when the Red Sea opens and God's children are running away from their captors, 
The light changes position and gets down between God's people and the enemy that's chasing them down and kind of stunts their, 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 halts their, their advance. The light was even in a protective form. And so when Jesus says, I'm the light of life, it's like capital L, your entire life, every aspect of it, I'm shining in it to bring you my presence, to bring you my guidance, and to bring you protection. This is why he's more than just illumination. He's transformation. Second point that we'll make a little bit quicker than the first is that life is more than fandom. It's following. The real life that Jesus is talking about is more than just you and I appreciating Jesus. It leads us to pursue him. Again, in verse 12, he says that um, I'm the light of the world. Whoever what? Follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus didn't say, whoever will let my light shine on them and I chase them down wherever they're running. There is an aspect of God's care for us, his shepherding care that will chase us down. But he says, no, I've got a light burning. You just need to follow it. And there's two ingredients in this Christian life, this aspect that we call discipleship or being a student of. Is, is being a follower of, and it's simply this, belief and trust. You have those two ingredients that go together, and that will move you in the direction of that light, and you'll follow it. Now, I'm going to quote another book. I know I got a lot of quotes for you this morning, but I wanted to show this one to you because we've been saying that um, next month we're going to be doing a book together as a church. We're going to put them out in the entryway, as many as we can provide, and uh, we'll go through the details. But I wanted you to see, I'm being kind to you. Look how little this thing is. There's like um, 110 quarter pages to this book. You can read it in an afternoon. I'm encouraging you not necessarily to do that. I'm in the process now of filming just these little simple kind of unscripted um, companion videos for each chapter. It just helps us recall what we read. If you're like me, I can read this and be like, this is an amazing book. I love this. And I go like this and go, what did I just read? I don't remember. So I got to go back over it again and everything. So I'm hoping, you know, that that helps with that. But uh, this book, just part of a, a series of books that our elders have been studying together for the last year and a half, I think now, uh, and this one's simply called Discipling. So Mark Deaver says this, there are no disciples of Jesus who are not following Jesus. Ticking a box on a public opinion poll or sincerely labeling yourself with the religion of your parents or having a preference for Christianity as opposed to other religions, none of these things make you a Christian. Christians are people who have real faith in Christ and who show it by, listen to this, resting their hopes, fears, and lives entirely upon him. They follow him wherever he leads. This is the life of being a disciple. It's a life of being a Christian. It means that we follow. We don't just appreciate Jesus. We don't just applaud him from a distance. We chase him down. Why would we do that? Because we're not just settling for some of him in our life. We're not just saying, oh, I'm a little deficient. I need to turn on a lamp and get 20 minutes of Jesus. I need to glow. I need to bask in the glow of him for a bit. And once I feel warm and fed and, 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 and all filled up, then I'm going to, then I'm going to be able to go off and go back to answering to myself, doing things that get me tripping over myself in the darkness. No, it's, it's, it's a chasing down. It's a matter of survival for us. I know that's not real. Dare I use the word in church? I know it's not real sexy when it comes to uh, our Christianity to think that we're clinging on this white knuckling, but I think we have to start admitting that that's what life is like. 
God's grace gets us through so many things, but our flesh is so flimsy. And we're hanging on by a thread. So I chase him down. I pursue him for my survival because he's the light of life. Jesus is continuing to compare himself to all these essential elements. He says, I'm water, I'm bread, I'm light. Later on, he'll have other images for us to understand. Why would Jesus compare himself to these essentials of our life? Because he's in everything. He is essential for our survival. And I say this with all the compassion I can muster because I don't, I don't mean to just repeat some of the tone that I always heard growing up and everything. But if you have a Sunday only relationship with Jesus, you're not a follower of his. You're just settling. Jesus shines on your work ethic. Jesus shines on your relationships that you have with one another. Jesus shines on your sexual ethic. Jesus shines on your entertainment, and I don't just mean choices based on rating. That would be the easy way out. I was having a conversation with a dear brother this week, and we were just talking about how we're so fixated by what's next and how entertainment can become in and of itself sort of this, this expectancy life where we're kind of like a god. It's not just about the ratings or whether something's clean or not clean. It's how much do I need a distraction and Jesus shines light on our money, on our, on our uh, conduct in public and our conduct in private. All of these things, the light is these ma- this massive torch shining in all of these different corners. And yet we want to have this personal little close relationship with Jesus like a candle. And I like to put my candle on the, on the side here and it just kind of warms me up. I get a little bit of glow, but not too much. I don't want to see the cobwebs in the room. I just want to see what I'm trying to read. And I like dim light. If you've been in my office, that's kind of how I operate. I hate it when everything's just bright and you can see everything. But, but metaphorically, it doesn't hold up for my Christian life. I want to control Jesus. Just give me a little bit of ambiance. Don't take over the whole thing. For us this morning, I'm hoping that we're thinking about our belief and our trust I hope that we're evaluating whether or not that we recognize that Jesus is the only light for our darkness. Everything else is a poor, cheap substitute. And the batteries eventually go out. We have to start smacking the flashlight, trying to get the light to come back on. It wasn't meant to endure. It's not an eternal light like Jesus is. And trust, that second element in this Christian life, is an element that makes belief more than just knowledge or assent. It requires us to get in motion. It requires us to put in action. If I really trust what I claim to believe, it will be evident in my life and I'll be moving. I'll be desiring the light. I'll be, as the light moves on, I'm chasing it down. Why? Because that's what I need for my survival. I know what I do in the dark and I can't be trusted. He's the only one that rescues me. To be repetitive, unless you are walking in the light of Jesus, you're stumbling in the darkness. And his call for us is to come to the light. He would have even done it for his nasty enemies. So he certainly would do it for you. Let's stand and let's close our time in prayer. Prepare to thank the Lord through song. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for loving us. I thank you, God, for giving us the light of your presence, the light of your direction, Lord. We don't know which way to go in the light of your protection because we need it, but we need to be protected from ourselves, Lord. We want the darkness so often. I know we do. And we can't explain it. 
We don't want the effects of it. We don't want the consequences of it. But Lord, life is just different when we surrender to you. Life has meaning. The torch doesn't go out when we walk in your light. So thank you, Lord, for your mercy and showing it to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.